Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Future of Application Security. Today, we have Derek Fisher with us. Derek, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Derek, it is a pleasure to have you on this episode. I've been looking at some of your podcasts and some of your books and content and articles that you've been publishing. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I love people who have educated opinions, so it's going to be great. Before we dive in, I would love to have you introduce yourself to our audience. What do you do? Where you work at? What are you passionate about? Sure. So I, I work at a financial technology company uh, called InvestNet. We're a, a large advisor organization. So we create software for financial advisors. We also do some data aggregation work as well in the, in the financial industry. And so obviously we have a lot of concerns around security when it comes to that type of, of work. I've been in engineering for uh, going on probably about 30 years now. I started out in hardware engineering, moved into software engineering, eventually got into cybersecurity uh, about 10 years ago, and been in application security ever since. So I teach at Temple University. I've been doing that for several years now. I teach a software development security course there. I've written a book on building an application security program, written a, a children's book series on cybersecurity as well. So... You know, a lot of what I try to do and, and my passion, I, I suppose, is is really trying to engage others in security. And and one of the things that I think has become very relevant, at least in application security, and at least in my experience, has been the fact that no matter how large my team is, it's never going to be large enough to cover the, the space that I need. And so the majority of my job and a big priority in, in my role is really to raise the security awareness of everybody else around me. because when I'm working with engineering teams, their ability to be able to code secure means that my team and myself have to spend, you know, less time doing that work. And so the, it's really a way for us to kind of spread the wealth. And and that's why I'm kind of passionate about, you know, raising the, the security awareness of others. Talk about shifting left and raising security awareness. You went all the way to children's books, right? That's real shifting left. <laughs> You know, I, I have a daughter, she's 12. When I first started writing the books a few years ago, she was about the age that, you know, I was kind of targeting with the books. And um, it's interesting to see when I grew up and and when many of us, you know, that are kind of in this business and, and have gray hair and stuff, uh, you know, when we grew up, we didn't grow up with devices in our hands. That has fundamentally changed today. You know, children, uh, even ones that are preteen and, and younger, all they know is technology. You know, it's, it's around them everywhere. And I think... It's on us in the security space to really help raise that awareness of not just the the children, but also parents, because, you know, those of us that are in specifically cybersecurity, but even technology, we kind of know, you know, we know what the dangers are. We know what the risks are and, and we have a good idea of how to really put controls in place. But I think there's a lot of parents out there that don't know that. And I think for those of us that can provide that help and that guidance, I think is critical to really help because there's true dangers out there. There's a lot of real world implications for misuse of technology. And, you know, kids are especially prone to that. 
Right, right. Since you also teach that at Temple University, have you seen a shift or a change over the past few years in terms of people's interests in cybersecurity? I have. It's funny. Um, when I first started teaching at, at Temple, the individual that introduced me to Temple and, and brought me in, they brought me in just as a speaker for his particular course on quality assurance. And so I did a night each semester in his course to, to talk about security as part of quality assurance. And, uh, you know, we started having conversations about maybe this is somewhere that Temple might want to, you know, have a course on, on you know, software development security. And I remember the gentleman that, that brought me in said, nobody's ever going to sign up for that course. It's like, no, nobody cares about security. It's going to be boring. You're going to get two people sign up. And, you know, since I started the class, the class has always been full with a waiting list. And actually last semester and this semester that we're currently in, I've had to expand to two sections. So now there's, you know, two classes being taught each semester and both of them are at capacity with a waiting list. So to me, that shows a good, either I'm an easy teacher and everyone wants to join the class because it's an easy, you know, it's an easy course. Or, you know, it, I'd like to think that, uh, you know, the students are, are really getting something from that. And, and one of the things that I often end the course with is that I try to impart to the students that there's a lot of students leaving, particularly software engineering type of degrees. There's a lot of students that are graduating with that. And so in order to set yourself apart, you really have to have a niche. You really have to have, you know, something that's going to kind of make you stand out from the other hundreds of engineers that you're going to be competing with. And I think as organizations mature and as we obviously see the impacts security and, and understanding that security has a real place at the table in terms of, of technology, being able to go to a, an interview and say, hey, you know, I understand security. I, you know, I understand what basic concepts of security are. And I understand how to stop SQL injection. And, and I understand what, you know, parameter tampering is and, and how encryption works and things like that. Those are going to set you apart from the people that the others that you're, you're competing with. So I try to make sure that students, you know, understand that. Right. That's awesome. So when somebody graduates with taking your course, how employable, I guess, are the skills is the learning curve significantly higher when they look for a software security role or that sets them up on a much easier ramp? What's your thought on that? Yeah, I, you know, it, I remember stating on several occasions, like in my course, that you're not going to walk out of here and become a pen tester. You know, you might if that's really where your passion is and that's really where you want to you know, follow. But the purpose of the course that I teach is really to, to get those foundations built in. So you know, basic understanding of the CIA, you know, confidentiality, integrity, availability, the basics of, you know, what encryption is and, and how it works and, and hashing and why we use it. And, you know, the OWASP top 10, doing basic threat modeling, risk assessments, understanding what a secure software development lifecycle looks like. I think all those things are, are relevant for anybody that I would be hiring for my team is an understanding of, of those concepts. And put in perspective, I have hired two students from Temple University into my team over the past uh, year or two. So some of those skills are very relevant to being able to get at least an entry-level job in a security engineering type of role. But, you know, what I look for when it comes to an application security engineer is really an understanding of how software gets built. Because, you know, I can teach you security. Or anybody can teach security. It doesn't have to be me. You know, you can learn security over time. You'll get it. You'll understand it. 
But I think being able to understand how software gets built, how it gets delivered, how it gets deployed, how it gets maintained, those are skills that I think you need day one. Because the individuals that we work with, we can run tools, you know, I can get operators to, you know, stand up tools and get reports and give those to development teams. But if you don't know how to put those results from those tools into the context of the application and understand what it takes to actually remediate that problem, then, you know, you're not really being helpful, right? So I, I think those skills of, of understanding how software gets developed is fundamental along with the security. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely very, very important. Now, in addition to teaching at Temple, you also have your own podcast. You talked about children's books, the abstract program handbook that you published as well. You teach at Temple and you have your own podcast. Talk to me a little bit about the podcast itself. Yeah, so I, I started um, the application security program handbook. It's published by Manning. It came out in December. Uh, you can get it on Amazon and, and manning.com. And so the podcast was really to kind of take some of the concepts from that book and put it into audio format. And if you go see it, it's uh, called Masterpiece Security. My intention with that is really just to be a little silly and over the top with it. You know, if, if you haven't seen it already, you know, I, I wear like the lounge, you know, bathrobe and, you know, slippers on and and I'm sitting by a fake fireplace. And anyway, it's supposed to be a little silly, you know, but at the same time, I want to talk about some of the concepts in the book. And, you know, it's meant to be short, engaging and not the, you know, here's my book and here's why, you know, these things are important. It's hopefully a little bit more, more fun. But my friend, who's the one that got me into Temple, he sent me a text uh, the other week and he said, how many of those, you know, videos are you going to release? And I was like, I have content for the entire year. So, <laughs> so brace yourself. But it's, I think to me, it's kind of a, a fun way and, and silly way of, of kind of hopefully making it a little bit more engaging and not as dry as uh, death by PowerPoint, as I like to say. So, right, right, right. So I'm sure, you know, in your role, you'd be facing a lot of the challenges that you're trying to solve. You're talking about how to solve those problems. What motivated you to write a book and do a video series on it? I started writing the book in, I guess it was 2021, uh, early 2021. And, you know, this was deep into the pandemic. And, you know, we all had a little extra time on our hands because we weren't commuting. We weren't out and about as much. So we had a lot of time on our hands. And, uh, and I had been kind of tossing around some ideas about, I had already written the first uh, children's book. I was starting to write the second one. And I had started thinking about, can I document my journey in application security? Because I think the things that I've learned and have seen and the pains that I've gone through and, and the things that I've done and where I've seen things work and not work, I think that's relevant to not just you know myself, but to others. And so you know, I started thinking about, is there a way for me to really document this and, and make it available? And uh, it just so happened that Manning Publishing had reached out to me and said, hey, have you ever thought about writing a book on application security? And I was like, I actually have. And so, so it, the stars kind of aligned there. And I'm thankful for Manning for, you know, reaching out and helping out in terms of getting the motivation there. Because if you, if you haven't written a book for a publisher yet, it's challenging. You're under strict deadlines. You have deliverables, you know, and they have people that, that keep you in check. And so it's work. And uh, it was it was a lot of work. But, you know, I, I'm glad that uh, so far there's been a lot of positive feedback on it. I think there's been a lot of people that have, that have found the value in it. And uh, again, I'm glad I can impart that because I think for those of us that go through these types of 
challenges in our professional lives where we're faced with coming into an organization and, and told to build an application security program. A lot of times it's like, okay, I can hire some pen testers and I can roll out SAST, right? You know, and, and you know, you go from there. So I think there's a lot of information out there. You, know, you look in OWASP, you can look at, uh, you know, NIST and there's you know a lot of other content out there, but I, I don't think as far as I've understood or seen, you know, one source of here's how you build a program. Yeah. I definitely remember this is more than a decade ago when I was trying to build my second AppSec program, learning from, I didn't want to repeat a lot of the mistakes from the first one. So I went looking for books and the one I referred to was uh, Gary McGraw's Software Security, Building Security mm. and phenomenal book. I'm sure it's still relevant. A lot of uh, yeah. concepts related to BSEM, if you're familiar with that framework. Yep. But yes, I 100% agree. A lot of people starting in this domain, there's got to be a simple, easy way to just navigate through this landscape because it's not just about what makes it fascinating. It's not just about technology. A lot of it is about to do with values, with culture, how you interact with other yeah. people, processes, all of that stuff combined together is what makes software security. And it, there's a lot that could go wrong, right? So you want to avoid those mistakes and uh, learning from a book that lays out the simple foundations and navigates you to a direction that's super useful. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I, you know, with our particular type of roles in, in application security, it's you do have to rely on your relationships with the development teams and the engineering teams because it's not as simple as just standing up some tools and, and throwing reports at people. It's not that easy. And, you know, there's a lot of negotiation. There's a lot of partnership. There's a lot of conversations that need to be had between, you know, your partners in engineering. And I think the relationships are an important part of that, that you just don't see as much of that in other spaces within security where, you know, you have to really have a tight coupling with, with the engineering teams. Right, right. If you were to highlight a few mistakes that people doing this for the first time make in the world of software security. Can you think of it? Yeah, I, I think I always try to bring everything back to risk. And I think one of the easy kind of gut reactions is that we have to, you know, do things X, Y, Z, because that's what, you know, everybody else is doing. And that's often not the case with, with application security. You need to take a look at what your organization looks like, what their risks are and what their structure is and what's going to work and what's not going to work, and then come up with that prescription that's going to solve your problems. And you could go to a, another organization that is the same size, the same industry, building very similar products and build a completely different AppSec program. And the reason for that is, you know, as we both kind of stated, is, is the culture. And, you know, each culture is going to be a little bit different in that organization. They're going to be more open to certain parts of application security and, and less open to others. So, you know, as an example, one sign of a fairly mature application security program is something like a security champions team. And you may not be able to get that off the ground in every organization because it does require buy-in from engineering. It requires participation from the people that are in engineering. A lot of times people are voluntold to be, you know, a champion and that doesn't always work. And so you can't always go from one organization in the same industry, same size, you know, similar products and say, first thing we're going to do is build a, you know, security champions team and may work in company A and not work in company B. And so I think, you know, saying that things like 
if you leverage something like BSIM to look and see what your peers are doing and you say, well, you know, our peers are doing X, Y, Z, and that's what we should do is often a misstep that many people take. Right, right. So how do you get to that level of understanding? What's going to work in the culture or whatnot? How do you start? Let's say you just joined a company, you're leading AppSec team, building things from scratch. How do you navigate your way around it? So the first thing that I've always done coming into an organization is, is start talking to your peers in engineering. And I actually touch on this in, in the application security program handbook about you know, how, to, how to do that, how to find out what are the concerns. Because again, you may come into an organization and speak to your, you know, your leadership in security, you know, your CISO and your peers, and, and they say, here's the biggest problem we have, and it's you know, X. And then you go talk to your engineering counterparts and you ask them, what's your biggest security concern? And they're going to tell you it's Y or you know, Z or whatever. They're going to say it's this other problem that the security organization either isn't even thinking about or not even considering. And you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, there's a side to be taken there, but having that information and understanding what, you know, the different priorities and what the different concerns are of not just the security organization, but also the engineering organization helps you understand what the risk is and what really the priorities are of everybody that you're going to be working with and need to partner with. Because if you go to engineering and say, well, you know, security thinks that this is the highest priority and therefore we need to go do that. And, and you know, engineering saying, well, we have this open window over here that, you know, everyone keeps climbing through and stealing our data. You know, that's our biggest problem. And so, again, it, there's a marrying of the two. You know, there's at the end of the day, the security organization and the application security team are there to reduce risk and really drive, you know, results around security. And doing so requires information. And it requires information from security and engineering. Right, right. Yeah, and I think one of the outcomes from these discussions could also be understanding of the appetite of these engineering teams to actually do anything about them. Like they might recognize the risk, but they might be so short-staffed, so much under the water that they might not be able to do anything about it in that case risk acceptances or just an understanding of what the risk appetite is for that team or for the organization right, should help you uh, get a better idea. Yeah, absolutely. So you've talked about several of these topics in your videos in, in the book as well. For example, I mean, I was just briefly looking at things like your thoughts on shift left, shift right, you know, some of those topics. Can you elaborate a little bit in the context of when you're building a new program where should you start? Should you start on the left? Should you start more on the right? Or how do you even make that decision? Yeah. And again, this depends on the information that you have. And so if you're coming into an organization with a very robust security, you know, organization where you have a lot of runtime protection or you have a lot of, you know, the detection and protection tools in the network and host le- level, then you might have a little bit more leeway on the shift right. In other words, you may not have to put as much focus on the shift right because you have compensating controls that are already there to be able to try to protect an application in runtime. So just to kind of level set there, when we look at that development lifecycle, you know, shifting right means you're you're closer to production, whereas shifting left means you're closer to the actual development of the code. So when we're shifting right, we're putting different protection tools or detection tools in that production environment specific to the application. And those, again, if you have a more robust security program, 
generally, not just application security, but your network security, your operational security, your cloud security, if that's more robust, then you then you don't have to focus as much on that. The shifting left is really what we would consider more the blocking and tackling, right? It's it's building in security requirements, it's doing threat modeling, it's training, it's you know security education, it's the champions group, and it's the partnership with the engineering teams. And to me, those aren't quick. Those aren't things that you just, you know, an hour meeting is going to solve all those problems or doing a, you know, a configuration of a tool is going to solve all those problems. Those are really where you're building that culture of security, where you're integrating processes and people as opposed to tools. And so you have a much longer runway on those things where you could, you know, a champions program to get it up and running and, and get it, you know, humming the way you want it. It may take you a year, two years, three years to actually get it to where you want it to be. You know, threat modeling is a process that takes a lot of time and takes people to do. And so being able to threat model like the entire architecture of, a, of an organization, that's a multi-year you know, type of effort. And so these things are, are things that, in my opinion, you do want to start early because the shifting right part of that where you know, standing up a tool, you know, a WAF, uh, web application firewall or, or a runtime application security protection like RASP or API protection or container uh, image uh, scanning or, you know, runtime protection on, on containers. Those things are more, you know, purchase, stand up and operate that you can do a little bit quicker than you can those other types of activities. Now, again, Every organization is different, right? You know, sometimes we all know those of us that have integrated tools in, in organizations, we know that it's not, uh, here's your software, go install and, and it's done. You know, it's <laughs> it's usually painful and, and long as well, but uh, it's, it's a little bit easier to manage, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And getting engineers to integrate things with security software and get it deployed into production, it's not easy. But yeah, I 100% understand exactly what you're saying, which is, it's the runtime thing can be solved with technology as compared to shifting left is more of a cultural change. Process change could take much longer to do, to get to success. Right. You can, you can deploy tools all you want and shift left, but if there's no process or culture associated with doing anything about it, then those tools will continue to produce noise. So then nobody right. will. Yeah. Which brings me to the topic of AppSec teams these days deploying too many tools and a lot of them ending up being shelfware. Or even if they're used, they're only used to generate more noise. And one of the reasons that I actually, one of the indicators that I've seen is as dev teams and development teams are getting more self-sufficient, self-service, they have the flexibility to choose their own stack and deploy their own infrastructure and their stacks into the, into the production environments. Most companies end up with a highly fragmented technology ecosystem. And to keep up with that, security teams end up deploying many, many tools, not just yep. SCAs and SAS, but also secret scanners, container scanners, DAST, bug bounty, pen testing, some open source tools for different frameworks, you know, all kinds of different things. And a very small abstract team, a handful of people in the team end up with way too many tools, each of them generating too much noise and an island of data in itself. Yep. Have you seen any light at the end of this tunnel of this overwhelming data? You know, I, I think it does take a little bit of self-editing, you know, in application security where we shouldn't be any different than engineering in the sense that tools that we're using, are they really relevant? 
are they really useful? Are we getting, you know, we should be asking ourselves those questions frequently. And I often have said to some of the vendors that we work with that, look, I can do application security a hundred different ways and it doesn't have to include your tool. You know, it, it can include two of the, of the tools we're running. It can include five of the tools we're running. It can include none of the tools we're running. And so I think, you know, it comes back down to what are you really trying to protect? More is not better. And if, you know, the, the risk tolerance of the organization is warrants and, and is high and warrants that the requirement to have a lot of different tools at every single corner of the SDLC, well, that's one thing. If the risk of the organization is is low and, and you know, you're maybe a SaaS tool and, you know, runtime protection is enough. And so I think it really comes down to we kind of not just in security, but I think, you know, in, in technology in general, we tend to think that buying tools, integrating them, that's the path, right? Because it's easy to show. It's easy to put on a slide to say, here's all the things we integrated. Here's where we're red, green, yellow. And, you know, here's the coverage percentage and then things like that which is great. But I think the question we have to ask ourselves really is, are we getting value out of those tools? And, you know, that's something that I've been challenging, you know, my team with as well is just, we have to ask ourselves that question. Are the tools we're using really valuable? And if they're not, then we need to cut them loose because it's not just more work on us. It's more work on the engineering teams too. And are we really moving the needle? Or are we really becoming more secure by running you know, uh, 10 tools as opposed to eight, you know? <laughs> so I, I think it's just general self-editing that we have to do and, and periodically check in to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Yeah, that's a very pragmatic way of looking at it, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, the objective for most security teams is to mitigate the risk or manage the risk. If you just do the basic things, which is running the tools, then you're, yes, you're getting visibility of the risk, but are you taking the next step, which is more important, which is are you actually mitigating that risk or managing that risk in an effective way? If right. not, then you're, there's not a significant value add by running all these things and finding right. problems because nobody's actually fixing it. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing's worse than doing some vulnerability management and getting, you know, if you're looking at a certain product line, you see the vulnerabilities come down. And everyone's like, oh, great, you know, we're doing great. You know, we're moving in the right direction. Vulnerabilities are coming down. Then you integrate a new tool and suddenly the vulnerabilities double and everyone's like, what happened? <laughs> and, right. you know, and so that's nothing's more disheartening than doing that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So when you're collaborating with different product teams, what are the things that you talk to them about? Are those metrics or risk driven conversations or is it something else? What do they need to know? if? If I'm a dev leader, what do I need to know from you? It's a mix of both. You know, I think generally we try to talk more about the bigger picture risk. We talk about, you know, what's future state. I mean, that's that's one of the things I'm always interested in is, you know, what is our future state? Because kind of tying back to the previous question about, you know, more tools and scanning and stuff. I think we also don't want to pull applications into the application security program that are going to be end of life next year. Right. And so there's also a, a bit of housekeeping that needs to be done on the engineering side or, or the the product line side to make sure that hey are we really are we really securing the right stuff because if we're using resources and and licenses and and time and and effort to provide an application security program to an application that's not going to be around uh, for very long that's wasted effort so, you know, when I'm talking to, to the development and engineering leaders, it's really about what's the bigger picture risk? Where are we going? What are some of the new technologies that are coming up 
And, you know, how can we be ahead of that? What are some of the new languages and, and technologies that they're using so that we know within application security, you know, do we have the coverage that we need there? Do we need to start getting engaged from a threat modeling and risk assessment perspective? So, you know, the vulnerability management aspects, the reports and the metrics, those things are, to me, can be sent in an email. You know, maybe if there's specific topics that we need to cover related to those things that are found in those metrics, then we'll talk about that. But something like that is something that I think can be, you know, looked at uh, at, a, at a different time. I, I prefer having more conversations as opposed to, you know, looking over uh, specific vulnerabilities. Right, right. So making it a more strategic risk-driven conversation, vulnerabilities is one aspect of that, but yeah, not absolutely. the conversation. Yep. Yep. So how do you collect that type of an information? I'm guessing there are many, many applications, many, many dev teams that are also changing at a reasonable frequency. So the attack surface is changing, the risk profile is changing. How do you track and record that? That's tough. So we do leverage our tools as much as possible to try to understand, you know, at least what it is that we have, but you can only protect what you know. If you don't know about it, you can't protect it. So that's where that conversation and where, you know, getting in front of product leaders as well as the engineering leaders to know, hey, what's coming online, what's upcoming that we need to be aware of so that we can start integrating that application security program. There is not really that I'm aware of, you know, a, a way of detecting that, it, you know, an, an application is on the roadmap, you know, automatically. I think there's, you know, you have to really work with your product leaders uh, to understand like, hey, what's upcoming so that we know what we need to do. Now, of course, you can detect when somebody stands up an application in your data center or in the cloud, you know, that you can find out by then it's too late. <laughs> so, you know, in order to get ahead of that, you know, from an application security perspective, you need to be in front of the product uh, owners and product leaders. Right, right. One of the ways that I've seen, and I was just talking to somebody else on, on another podcast, was that if engineering has a structured process of planning work, right? So if at the beginning of the quarter, if they are projecting that we're going to build these features or these applications and that gets recorded in some system of record, whether it's a Jira ticket or ServiceNow ticket or whatever it is, then you can potentially watch out for those tickets and trigger actions based on that. But right. that only works if engineering has that process, has that mature right. way of defining and declaring work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are other opportunities that I know that uh, we can leverage. And that's, you know, working with our, like the enterprise architecture teams to really, you know, because they're getting integrated early on to make architectural decisions. And so if you're capable or able to be able to be plugged into that level, then that's a, you know, a great place to be as well, because you not only are you there to see what's, what's upcoming, but you're also participating in that review of that architecture and make security decisions at that time. Right, right, right. Okay, so tell me a little bit about shift left strategies. In your experience, I mean, there's a lot of things that can be done in shift left, and it's also a big, broad terminology. How should someone start with that initiative? What should be, you know, the first few things that they do? So I think, again, it depends, I think, on the organization that you're in. But, you know, the basic foundations of, of shifting left is understanding how do you track vulnerabilities? I, I think that's honestly where you need to start because if you start layering in 
multiple tools. Like, let's say you start integrating a SaaS tool and an SCA tool, you know, software composition, static analysis, a dynamic analysis, and, you know, you integrate those tools and you have nowhere to put those vulnerabilities or no way to triage those vulnerabilities or no way to get in, in contact with the engineering team to say, hey, here's how you fix it, then it's pointless. So I think, you know, the first thing you need to do is understand what's the defect tracking and what's the defect lifecycle look like for the development team so that you can get plugged into that. And then it's about, you know, where are we going to get the most bang for the buck? If you're starting from scratch, a SaaS tool is probably not, you know, I, I may not win a lot of fans for this or I may get some pushback from others, but in my opinion, a SaaS tool is not where to start. You want to look at something like a DAS tool, a dynamic scanner, because you want to see for the most part, what is exploitable, because you want to catch those first. So a SaaS tool and then an SCA tool, software composition, so you can see where your third-party uh, library issues are. Those two, to me, are, are the two you know, starting points once you have the understanding of what the vulnerability management lifecycle looks like, because that'll give you a good indication of like, hey, here's our exploitable for the most part. I mean, you know, you're not going to get everything with a DAS tool and not everything is going to be a true positive but you're going to see what the surface vulnerabilities are with the DAS tool. And then with the libraries, you're going to get some good hygiene information around, you know, the libraries that you're using that might be insecure. So I think those are the good starting point. Then you start looking at, you know, bringing in a SaaS tool, threat modeling, and, you know, kind of turning the screws on, on shifting left, building a champions program, building up an education program and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good step-by-step -step approach because then, like as I think about what type of skills you would need to do the first steps versus the you know the threat modeling and security champions all that, it's increasingly more strategic skills, increasingly more experienced people that yep. you need who can collaborate and partner with other senior leaders within the organization. I mean, to be a good threat modeler, you you have to understand a lot of different things, and not just security, more in yep. the architecture world, right? So. Right. It's not something that a very, very junior new person can do. Uh, you yep. need a little bit of an experience. That's a great way to structure step-by-step -step maturity of your abstract program. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the conversations that I've been a part of also trigger these thoughts around like, when do you actually get involved with dev teams, especially if dev teams are fairly agile? It doesn't have to mean that they release every single day, but if they're fairly agile, they are also planning and delivering their work, their work quickly. When you have a security champions program or a threat modeling or some sort of interaction that's needed at a certain phase pre-deployment of the work that dev teams are doing, how do you watch out for those signals that now it is time to, you know, reach out to this team or this individual? Do you have any ideas on how you can structure those checkpoints? Yeah. Um... I wish it was easy. And I tell my boss often that, uh, you know, that this job is tough. And so, and all of us that are in AppSec, you know, know that this job is tough because there isn't, you know, there isn't a, a light that goes off in the scrum room or on your uh, collaboration tool that says, hey, this team is, you know, needs you now. So it often requires being plugged into engineering and, and knowing what's going on in terms of releases and knowing where the product is heading and, and where the features are, are coming in. But you know, in my preference is always to be as early as possible, right, in that life cycle. So as soon as we're gathering requirements, as soon as we're, you know, building the use cases and the user stories, uh, and we know what the customer actually wants from a feature perspective, that is really when we want to be engaged. And so, 
you know, that looks different in every organization as to when and, and, and how to plug into that particular workflow. But it does require just basically, I know this isn't going to be the best answer, but it's going to be ear to the ground, you know, and, and being, I guess, you know, a lot of us are virtual or hybrid at this point, but it's, you know, it's the walking the halls, whether it's, you know, physical or virtual to really just be able to understand where the organization's going and, and what's being built. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. I was uh, talking to somebody else who would trigger questionnaires, uh, mm-hmm. a lightweight questionnaire at a certain point, like when you know that engineering is building a new feature, whether it's a Jira webhook or something like that from a tactical implementation perspective, but trigger questions at a certain point that influences the risk of that particular application. So you ask certain questions that drives the risk of that application or the product. And then that triggers automations of, you know, scans or tests or threat model activity, have you. So an end-to-end platform, obviously there's a lot of unknowns in terms of, you know, they respond to certain things in a questionnaire, but then, you know, a week later, the whole architecture changes. It's changed, right? Yeah. And you, you don't track that. So you're going to have missed visibility into that, but at least it's uh, it's better than nothing. Yeah. And I, I've seen a lot of cases where a simple intake form, right? And whether it's a security intake form or whether it's uh, the business or a product uh, intake form where, hey, we got a new feature coming in. Here are the things that we need to do. And just basically putting a have you had security review this you know checkbox on that form is also helpful because if you can get in front of that activity then you're getting into that early stages additionally some organizations will have you know some level of i don't want to use the word gate but there may be some level of gating where you know you can't move to production unless you've had a security review if that process uh, exists and is there then there there's a you know, some uh, capability for security to get integrated there. Right, right. Awesome. So do you cover these topics in the in the book that you wrote? I cer- certainly do. <laughs> Fantastic. That's a, that's a great way. Can you state the name of the book again and uh, where can users look that book up? Where can they buy it? Sure. Uh, it's called the Application Security Program Handbook. Uh, you can find it on manning.com or you can find it on Amazon. Uh, you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn, be happy to to help direct from there. The children's book uh, is called Alicia Connected, and you can get that uh, on Amazon as well. Fantastic. Derek, it was such a pleasure having you on this podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.